Welcome to A Big Heart, a podcast about living with heart disease. I'm Mike Papali, and I'm the president and founder of In a Heartbeat, a nonprofit organization with a mission to prevent death from sudden cardiac arrest. I went into sudden cardiac arrest at age 17 and have been living with heart disease for over a decade. This podcast will dissect the physical and emotional obstacles of living with heart disease and how to overcome them. I am inviting you to join me on my personal journey of living as a heart disease patient. The ultimate goal of this podcast is to help heart disease patients of all ages live a long and normal life. Welcome to the very first episode of A Big Heart, a podcast about living with heart disease. I truly appreciate you taking the time to be here today. There are now 1.7 million podcasts out there, so I appreciate you taking the time to be here with this one. The most important value you have in your life is time, so I want to make sure that the time that you spend listening to a big heart is valuable. So if you're a heart disease patient, if you're a cardiac arrest survivor, if you're a patient living with an implanted defibrillator, if you're a family or a friend of someone in one of those categories, or if you're a doctor, if you're a cardiologist, an electrophysiologist, a nurse, or some other medical professional that might be trying to learn about the patient perspective of living with heart disease, or if you're just someone who likes to be inspired, that likes to hear great stories, stories of courage, of fighting, then you're in the right place. Then A Big Heart is the perfect podcast for you. So this is what we're going to do today. Two things. First, I want to talk about my inspiration for this podcast. And after that, I want to share my story. I want to share why I'm the one sitting behind the microphone here and why I think I can add value to your life. So first is the inspiration. So I truly believe that heart disease patients can live a very long and a very normal life, but it's not easy. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It takes learning. It takes patience. But if you're a heart disease patient, you can get there. And I've thought now, because I've been a heart disease patient for over 14 years, that obviously the first and most important part of your treatment plan is your doctor. Your doctor is brilliant. Your doctor has the knowledge. Your doctor's treated other patients. They know more about the disease that you're living with than anyone. And as important as that is, it's also important to connect with other patients, other survivors, other people that have the experience or are living through the things that you're about to live through. And to go on that journey with them, to use each other, to learn from each other, to allow yourself to safely live a long and normal life. So that's the goal here. The goal here is to help heart disease patients help cardiac arrest survivors, help patients living with an ICD, inspire people, teach them, help them live that long and normal life. Because with heart disease, no matter how you're diagnosed, whether it's after a sudden cardiac arrest, whether it's after going to the doctor and and getting an EKG and an echocardiogram and and doing a stress test 
or, or getting an MRI. No matter how that diagnosis comes, it comes with feelings, feelings of anxiety, of depression, of confusion, of anger, of fear. And those feelings, those feelings are normal. I had them. Everyone's had them. But we can get through this together. We can learn from each other and we can learn how to live that long and normal life that we want to live. And that's the inspiration behind the podcast. Because I truly do believe that heart disease patients can get their life back. So how are we going to do this? First, we're going to share stories. Stories are the most powerful, the most inspiring thing there is. I'm going to share my story. We're going to have other people on here sharing their story. And you're going to hear from them. You're going to hear about their obstacles, both physical and mental, and how they've overcome them. We're going to talk about different topics. We'll have a new topic every week. Topics that I have, things that I've been through. Topics that you want to hear. Topics that are real live things that can affect a heart disease patient's life. And finally, we're going to bring on medical professionals. We're going to bring on cardiologists, electrophysiologists, psychologists, people that have treated heart disease patients for years and have expertise in this field and can help patients live the life that they want to live. So that's the inspiration. That's the goal. And that's what we're going to do. And now I'm going to tell you about my story. I know there's people listening that have heard my story, but I have to share it. I have to share it for our new listeners. So that's what this first episode is. I'm going to share my story and tell you why I'm sitting behind this microphone right now and why I'm so passionate about heart disease and helping heart disease patients. Like I said, my story, it started over 14 years ago. I've been living with heart disease for over 14 years. It's crazy how time flies. It really is. Um, but I'm going to take you back. I'm going to take you back early in my life. I'm going to talk about, you know, what happened and how my diagnosis came. So when I was a kid, when I was growing up, I really only had one passion in my life. And that passion was playing basketball. It was the only thing I cared about. I wasn't well-rounded. I didn't, uh, you know, I wasn't uh, into art. I wasn't into music. I wasn't into theater. Looking back, I certainly wish I was. I certainly wish I was a little more well-rounded, but I wasn't. I was hyper-focused on basketball. It was the only thing I cared about. Um, so I spent my life with one goal, and that was to play basketball in college, right? From a young age, I was, uh, you know, in, in middle school, I was playing on my middle school team, on a travel team, on an AU team, on a CYO team. You know, I was playing in the backyard, going to the park. You know, then I got to high school, and I started to realize, okay, if I really want to do this, I have to take this seriously. I have to have a serious workout regimen that's planned. So I started working out with a strength and conditioning coach. I started working out with trainers that helped me with my basketball skills. I kept playing AAU basketball. You know, obviously I played on my high school team. It was a year-round sport for me. Every single day, 24-7, 365, basketball. And that's what it was going to take for me to play basketball in college. And as I went through high school, I started to get better. I started to watch my game progress. You know, I had a, you know, I was having a good high school career. I was starting on a varsity team, scoring a bunch of points. But that wasn't the goal. The goal was to play basketball in college. And that was the only thing that I cared about. So the summer between my junior and senior year was crucial for me to get recruited. I had to put myself in front of college coaches so they could see me, they could watch me play, and they could determine if I was the right person to come play for the team at their school. 
So I spent that summer with my AAU team. We traveled to all these tournaments, all these showcases. We played in gyms full of college coaches. We were playing and there'd be chairs around the court and coaches were sitting in them. And they were taking notes. They were watching. And if they liked you, if they liked your game, if they liked your attitude, if they thought you'd be a good fit at their school, after the tournament ended or after the event ended, they'd follow up with you. And this is before like you could just send someone a quick text. I, I think I had a cell phone, but it wasn't easy to text. And I think I could only send like 100 a month at that point. So they, they send, send you letters in the mail. They call my house phone. They sent emails to my parents. I don't even think I had an email. And, and that started to happen. You know, I was getting letters. I was getting emails. You know, my parents were getting calls. And all these coaches were trying to convince us as a family, like, your son should come to this school because X, Y, Z. And that was the first time in my life where I felt like all that hard work I put in, all the time I put into basketball, was finally starting to pay off. Everything I did, my dream, my goal to be a college basketball player was getting ready to come true. So I made it through that summer. I started looking at schools. I started figuring out, okay, where do I want to go? What matters to me? And at the end of the summer, my brother and I were counselors at my dad's annual basketball camp. My dad started this basketball camp like 20 years ago, right? We played in it when we were little kids. And when we outgrew, we became counselors. Such a great time in the summer. So the Wednesday night, it was the week before school started. We're counselors at the camp and we have camp early the next morning. But my brother and I decide, you know what? We want to wake up early and we want to get a basketball workout in early in the morning. So the next morning, August 24th, 2006, we woke up. It was like 6 a.m. We had one of our friends come pick us up. He drove us over to a gym and put us through a workout for like an hour and a half. Typical basketball workout, right? High intensity, sprints. You know, running up and down. My heart rate was jumping all over the place. And I was completely fine. Completely normal. Nothing really stood out. Nothing was out of the ordinary. After the workout ended, we hopped back in his car. He drove us over to the Parks and Recreation Center where my dad was hosting this camp. And we walked in. It was like 8.15. Said hi to my dad. I changed my shirt and I ordered lunch. And that's the last thing I remember from that day. So the rest of my story, up until I tell you when I remember again, is all from what people have told me. At 10.30 that morning, I was sitting on the bleachers. Two and a half hours later, I don't remember any of that two and a half hours. I was outside with the kids, putting them through drills, coaching games, refereeing. We had the kids, you know, hanging out in the at the concession stand. I don't remember any of it. But at 10.30, I was sitting on the bleachers with my friend right next to me. My brother was on the court. He was refing a game. And I slumped over and I face planted and I was on the ground and I was in sudden cardiac arrest. And my friend thought I was joking. Nobody really knew what was going on. So he kicked me. He said, come on, Mike, stop messing around. And when I didn't respond, he knew something was bad. So he sprinted to go get my dad. As many of you probably know, and if you don't know, you're going to learn that the only way you can survive sudden cardiac arrest is by receiving immediate CPR and being quickly shocked by an automated external defibrillator, also known as an AED. If those two things happen quickly, survival rate for cardiac arrest can be really, really good. But unfortunately, oftentimes they don't. And in my situation, they didn't. I didn't receive CPR because nobody knew what to do. Nobody could believe 17-year-old star basketball player, healthy, 
this guy that they watched grow up and never have a medical issue, that guy can't need CPR. Can he? The sad part was I did. And for some reason, the building I was in, it was Parks and Recreation Center, there was no automated external defibrillator in the building. No AED. So those two factors made my chances of survival very, very slim. My dad and my brother were right there. They didn't know what to do and they were helpless. And I can't imagine that feeling. It, you know, watching someone that you love dying in front of you. My mom was at home. She got the phone call from my dad. The phone call that no mom ever wants to get. The phone call that something's wrong with your son. You need to come quickly because we don't know what's going to happen. And my mom was racing. And she knew that as she was racing, if she didn't hear an ambulance, everything was okay. I got really lucky because someone called 911. And when they called 911, there was a man uh, in the building next door. Uh, there was another office, another business. And he was a volunteer firefighter. He was sitting at his desk. He was sending an email. But he had his pager on. So when a 911 call came through, he got the call. He recognized the address and he came over. And he found me on the ground, turning blue, agonal gasping, one of the very common signs of cardiac arrest. Also the, the, the last breath they say you take before you die. And he started performing CPR immediately. And he performed really, really perfect CPR. He saved my life, he saved my brain, and he kept me alive. And eventually the ambulance came, and the EMTs ran in with a defibrillator. They put the pads on, and they shocked me. And I had a heartbeat, a normal heartbeat. But I was still unconscious. I was still very critical. They threw me in, in the back of the ambulance. And they rushed me to the hospital. And my mom had her worst nightmare come true. She was driving up the hill and she heard the sirens. And she turned around and she followed them. And we got to the hospital. And I was so critical. They determined they had to move me to a new hospital. That was adequately prepared to treat my condition. When we finally got to that next hospital, I was rushed into the uh, pediatric intensive care unit, the PICU, and they put me on a ventilator and I was unconscious. And later that night, a cardiologist pulled my parents into a room. Everybody was still so confused about what was going on, but they pulled my parents into a room and they said to them that your son has something wrong with his heart. We have to figure out what caused him to go into cardiac arrest. Why did this happen earlier today? And my parents, like a lot of families, thought that heart disease didn't affect young people. Heart disease only affects old people, people that don't eat well, people that aren't in good shape, people that smoke, people that are overweight. Those are the only people that heart disease affects. That's what we used to think. So when a doctor told my parents that I had potentially heart disease, they said, you're wrong. There's no way that my 17-year-old, healthy, active, athletic son, we take him for a physical every year and the doctor says he looks perfect. There's no way he has something wrong with his heart. And that was just us as a family at the time being ignorant. We didn't know who heart disease affected. So we couldn't believe, my parents especially in that moment, couldn't believe that could possibly affect their son. So I spent the next day, I was unconscious, um, you know, visitors coming in to see me, not being able to believe what they saw, you know, and, and later this, the second night I was there, I woke up and I finally opened my eyes and my parents, you know, they wouldn't leave my side until they saw me um, do something. 
So I, I recognized my parents right away, asked for my brother who was staying with, uh, you know, with our best friend and um, just was very agitated, very confused. And my parents, from what they've told me, they tried to explain what was going on and I couldn't, I couldn't put it together. I couldn't comprehend it. And then I just kind of went back to sleep and, and, and woke up in the morning. And the next morning, uh, a very odd behavior started happening. You know, I had visitors come in and they were excited to talk to me um, to kind of see how I was doing and that I could communicate. And, and when they came in, I could tell them something really fun that we did like three years prior, like a game we played in or a workout or uh, that time we hung out at the mall. I could tell them all about it. But the second they walked out the door, I had no recollection of them being there. And another example is, you know, my mom was sitting by my side and people were sending cards. And I had this one card I loved. It was all the kids from the camp. They all was this big card. And, and when it came, I was so excited. I, I read it. I read all the names on it and I put it down. And then I looked at my mom the second I put it down. And I said, oh my God, mom, look at that card. Can I read it? Like I had never read it before. And the doctors told my parents this is a very common uh, occurrence with sudden cardiac arrest, right? Because there's a lack of oxygenated blood going to the brain. So there's always the fear of long-term brain damage. And oftentimes the last piece to come back is a short-term memory. But they were unsure if it actually would. Thankfully, another day went by and it, you know, my, my, my memory came back. And this first day that I remember uh, was my, my day of testing. Uh, a day I wish I didn't remember. Uh, you know, I, I had gotten plenty of EKGs and they gave me an echocardiogram and they brought me down for a cardiac MRI. I had never had an MRI before. I knew you had to be in a really enclosed space, which I don't love. Um, but they wanted me to stay still the whole time, which I don't do. Still to this day, I don't sit well. And I was feeling claustrophobic, so I was sweating and then I was sticking to the mat. And every time I tried to take a picture, I moved. And every time I moved, I heard them say, we got to take that one over. And it took three hours, three long agonizing hours of laying in this enclosed space waiting to be pulled out. And the test took so long, they brought me right from my MRI to my cardiac catheterization. The cardiac catheterization is where they put a small camera up through the groin and down through the neck. And they take a, a biopsy of your heart that they can, they can look under a very, very fine microscope. Uh, so they have to put you under general anesthesia. And when they did, when I woke up, I threw up all over the place because I had a bad reaction to the anesthesia. So my first day of memory wasn't a great one, um, but it was a crucial one, right? Because it was all these tests that I needed to determine what caused my sudden cardiac arrest. The next day uh, was time for me to learn my diagnosis. And my doctor, who I'm thankfully still in touch with this day, and, and maybe we'll have uh, as a guest in the podcast, um, sweetest person. Uh, I, I credit her for um, saving my life when I was very crucial, even after the cardiac arrest. Uh, she, she came in to give me the diagnosis and she said that it was very clear that I had a heart disease called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, also known as HCM, much easier to say. So she diagnosed me with the, uh, told me the diagnosis and she explained it, that it was excessive thickening of the heart muscle and how it ultimately caused my sudden cardiac arrest. She also explained that there was no cure for the condition and that it was a condition I was going to live with for the rest of my life. Again, 17 years old, heart disease, the rest of my life, it just didn't make sense. And then she said she had good and bad news. She said the good news was that I went into sudden cardiac arrest and survived because the survivor rate is so low. And she said based on the fact that I didn't receive CPR right away and that there was no AED on site, my chances of survival were one in a million. 
And that was the good news. She said, the bad news is you'll never play competitive basketball again. And we're going to talk about this on another episode because this is a very um, passionate topic of mine. But when you have something at age 17 that you think defines you as a person, it's the only thing you know. It's your only purpose. Or you think it's your only purpose because it's not actually your only purpose. But when you're 17 years old, you think it is. And when that gets taken away from you, you have these feelings of anger, of depression, of sadness, confusion, anxiety. And those feelings are normal, but they're undescribable. And we're going to spend an episode talking about that. Talking about losing something, whether it's a sport, a hobby, an activity that you love after your heart disease diagnosis. So more to come on that topic. But you can imagine how I felt in that moment, right? On one hand, I felt really lucky to be alive. But on the other hand, I had all those negative feelings about being diagnosed with heart disease. So um, the next part of the conversation was, okay, you told me I'm going to have this disease for the rest of my life. What are we going to do about it? How am I going to live? How am I going to be safe? What if I go into cardiac arrest again? What are my chances of dying? Right? I have all these millions of questions. Um, one of the nurses actually sent me home with a, um, w- with a, a ribbon that she made uh, that, that was uh, titled Most Informed Patient uh, due to the amount of questions that I asked. Uh, I'm not sure I'm proud of that, but um, I left the hospital with a ribbon. So they decided that they were going to put me on a beta blocker. Um, at the time, uh, it isn't the one that I was on now, but they put me on a, on a beta blocker and they were in a few days, they were going to implant a, an implantable cardioverter defibrillator, also known as an ICD. Um, they were surgically going to place it. It was like a square box. That was the battery and the generator attached to two wires that were attached directly to my heart muscle. And this ICD would shock my heart immediately if I ever go into cardiac arrest again. So it was going to be there to save my life. So my first question was, okay, what's it feel like? And I remember the description of it being, well, it feels like if you, if you feel it and you're conscious for it, it feels like getting kicked in the chest by a horse. And I don't know what that feels like, uh, but I'd imagine it doesn't feel good. So, you know, they, they put me on this beta blocker, a, a couple days go by and they bring me in for surgery. And, you know, they wheel me down and, you know, it's the first time I've had like a really serious surgery. Um, and so I'm nervous and you just have all these thoughts going through your head. Like, what if you don't wake up from the anesthesia? What if something goes wrong? What if whatever you're doing surgery basically on your heart? You know, what, what if this doesn't go, um, what, what if this doesn't go the, the way they, they want it to go? So, you know, uh, you know, you're laying there, uh, you start counting backwards from 10 after they start hitting you with the anesthesia, you know, 10, 9, 8, and then you just don't remember anything, you're out. And one of the benefits of being the person that's in surgery is you know, you have no concept of time. The bad part about being the family and the friends is that you sit in the waiting room and one minute feels like 10 hours. So my family, my brother and my friends are sitting in the waiting room and I'm in surgery. So basically this surgery uh, goes in a couple different sections. First, they um, obviously they prepare you. Um, then they have to cut a little incision right underneath my collarbone where they're gonna place a device. Um, they're gonna you know, place a device, they're gonna attach the wires, they're gonna you know, sp- attach the wires to my heart. And then before I come out of surgery, they need to test the device, right? Because the doctor, um, the electrophysiologist, who is the one performing this type of surgery, uh, an electrophysiologist, has to be comfortable that this device is going to save my life. 
if it needs to. So basically what they do is they manually, they, they put your body into a dangerous arrhythmia, a cardiac arrest, a ventricular um, tachycardia, or ventricular fibrillation. And they watch the device and they see the device work. So the device at the time, this is back in 2006, the maximum shock um, shocks was 36 joules. But they want a safety net, right? They don't want the device to only work when it's working at maximum capacity. So they want to see this device work with a 10 joule safety net. So they test it working only at 26 joules. So they put my body in the arrhythmia and it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work again. And obviously they have backup plans, right? If the machine doesn't work, they're able to use an external device to shock your heart and to get you back out of the rhythm. But it doesn't work. And my parents are in the waiting room. It's been hours longer than it was supposed to go. And they know. And the electrophysiologist walks in and, and they can tell. He looks defeated. His body language is just down. He looks sad. And he tells my parents the surgery didn't go as planned, explains to them that he's not comfortable sending me home because the device would only shock at its maximum power. And if it ever didn't shock at its maximum power when it needed to, it wouldn't save my life. So I came out of this surgery. You know, I was like ready to go home. This is the last step. And of course, I get the news, you know, you're not going home. Uh, a couple, we have to figure out what's going on here. They explain it. And, and they, they made a couple decisions. They made one decision to change my beta blocker to a, uh, a lower dosage and a different, different uh, medicine uh, called Natalol. And we couldn't believe them doing this because we were like, okay, why are we giving a, oh, in, in a sense, a, a less potent medicine when I have this problem in my heart? But we let the experts obviously do their job. And uh, they said in about four, four days or so, they're going to test the device again. And they're going to go back in and see if the change in medication, number one, affected anything. If it helped my blood pressure, if it helped my heart rate, if it helped um, regulate those things and allowed the machine to, to read them better. So that was the first thing. And if, if, if it didn't, on its own, they were going to add a third wire. They are going to add a third wire um, from the device touching my heart so it added more power. So, you know, uh, four more uh, torturous days, you know, being in the hospital, uh, you're just laying in a bed all day. I had great family, great friends, great support, people there. But at night, I just didn't sleep. You, you know, I was, I was up at night uh, watching every episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Um, over and over again and, and the night just turned in the morning and, and you know basically got zero sleep um, because of the anxiety because of the fear because of everything else going on so I had like four more days of that which I was dreading but they went by and I went in for this surgery and you know you have the same thing you're just like please work no I just want to go home most importantly I was like past the fact that something could go wrong in surgery past the fact that I was afraid of like not waking up ever out of the surgery. I was just like, I want to go home. So let's get the surgery over with and so I can go. So they go in, um, same thing. They, they do the prep. They do the anesthesia. I'm out. My parents are extremely anxious in the waiting room um, because they just want this to work and their son to kind of have some answers. And the first thing they're going to do is they're going to test the device um, and, and see if the change in medication made a difference. And thankfully it did. Um, right away, they tested it. It worked multiple times. And my parents were in the uh, waiting room for, for about a half hour when the uh, electrophysiologist came in with a much different body language, a much different energy, a much different level of excitement, and two thumbs up. And he was ready that uh, he was very happy that the device worked. And I was recovering from surgery. And after about a day, they were going to send me home. 
So, of course, we're going to have more episodes talking about ICDs and implanted defibrillators and what it's like to live with them. But we're not going to talk about that now. We're going to save that for a later date. Um, after about a day of recovery, uh, they, they said it was time for me to be discharged. It was time for me to go home. Uh, a very, very uh, big uh, weight off my shoulders. Uh, you know, they, they take the IVs out of your arms. And, you know, I'll never forget they made me they made me go to my parents' car. They wheeled me down in the wheelchair. They wouldn't let me walk. I guess it was a, a hospital protocol which I tried to fight, but they didn't let me. Uh, but, you know, we, we got in the car and, you know, as a family, you're, you're in there and, and it's pretty quiet and it's just everybody's a little relieved to be going home. And, you know, it, it was about a 40 minute drive and, and we parked in the garage and we walked in the house and that feeling of relief, it just completely changed um, the second I walked in the house because the last time I was in that house, my life was normal. My life was on track. My life was what I wanted it to be. Now, it was different. Now, I was told that two weeks ago, I almost died. Now, I was told that I could go into cardiac arrest at any moment. I was told that my ICD could shock me because it needed to or by mistake at any moment. And for two weeks, I had doctors and nurses watching over me, keeping me safe, hooked up to all these wires and machines, and now I didn't. And again, those feel that feeling of relief changed. And that's when my journey of heart disease started, that day. That day was the first day for me where I had to learn how to live my life as a heart disease patient. And that's what I'm excited to do here on this podcast. You know, that, that, that's the first part of my story. Um, that's what got me here today. And what I'm most excited about is to talk about everything that I've learned from my life, from our guests that we're going to have on from their lives, all the physical and emotional obstacles that we've all overcome. And it's all going to come together and help heart disease patients. Again, that is the goal. The goal is to help heart disease patients live a long and normal life. So that wraps up episode one of the, a big heart podcast. Again, I truly appreciate you taking the time to tune in. Uh, if you have any feedback, any thoughts, any opinions, please reach out anytime. And I look forward to having you with us next time. Thank you so much for listening to A Big Heart, a podcast about living with heart disease. If you like this episode, it would mean so much to me if you could give it a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Like anything in life, the goal is to improve. Please provide any feedback you have, any topics you want to hear, or any guests that can provide value to our listeners. You can message us on Instagram at A Big Heart Podcast or send us an email at mike at in a heartbeat. Org. To learn more about In a Heartbeat and the programs we provide, please visit www.inaheartbeat.org. That is www.inaheartbeat.org.